Welcome to the Campaign Builder. I'm Adam. And I'm Dan. And we're building a full campaign as transparently as possible. In each episode, we're discussing overall plot points and focusing in on how to use dynamic encounters to make more engaging sessions. For more general discussions, look for Campaign Builder episodes called Foundations, like this one, or check out our Dungeon Mastery series on the regular It's a Mimic podcast. The party we're planning for includes a warrior, a priest, a mage, a criminal, and an outdoorsman as they explore their homebrew setting. They've recently had their first major victory and uncovered the first clue as to why the gods went missing. But now that they've had their big fight in the enemy's lair, it's time to sit down and talk about how to design an appropriate lair for a monster. All episodes are available on the It's a Mimic feed, as well as on iTunes, Spotify, and many other podcast apps. Everything is also nicely broken up into playlists on YouTube. And don't forget to follow or subscribe on whatever app you're listening to, and head on over to www.itsamimic.com to support us by hitting the donate button there. And, now that we've appropriately pimped ourselves out, especially Dan, Woo-woo. let's get to building. New to 5th edition is the idea of the layer and the layer actions that exist. Now... We have more than just layer actions. We also have regional actions as well. And before we launch into the layer actions, let's get regional out of the way. Okay. Regional actions, as opposed to layer actions, are essentially broken up as a general rule into two categories. Layer actions are things that do damage, things that hinder movement, or things that add condition effects. Mm-hmm. Regional actions, also known as regional effects, depending on which book you're looking in, <laughs> have environmental emotional or atmospheric changes they tend not to do damage although they can occasionally add a condition usually exhaustion as you get closer or fright yeah there's also a few in like uh the dragons which are what we're going to be pulling a lot from because they're one of the ones that are the most well known for their layer actions at this point and and the regional actions as well um your ancient dragons have a wide bevy of uh, regional effects that come with them, um, both when they're alive and when they're dead, even. And things sort of peter out a little bit around the regional effects as well when that happens. Um, but you could also have things like elementals spawning randomly within and like other weird effects uh, that could then cause uh, potential damage. But for the most part, it's atmospheric. It's it's. There, it does get more complicated depending on where you go. For example, um, a lot of the mind flayers and elder brain stuff. There's layer actions down there with them. Yeah, there are layer actions with mummy lords and vampires. Really, anything or most things in your tier four setting, right? So um, we see it a lot with what are considered to be boss monsters. Mm-hmm. Why do you think fifth edition did this? Um, honestly, I think it's it's peculiar because they went through all of the monsters with a fine-tooth comb and removed a large portion of their aura effects, which is something you and I have frequently discussed as a problem on this and the regular podcast. I think they created a void and then a month later when they're putting together the book, they're like, there's this void here. How do we address it? I know. Let's just give the big, big bads this additional effect when there are these legendary creatures. And I think that's why 5th edition did it. Um, And I'm glad they did because it adds a lot of great flavor. Um, And as a DM building campaigns, it gives me a lot of inspiration and it gives me kind of that springboard to build off of and to jump off from uh, to build interesting regional effects and, and know that that's possible within this game. For my monsters, for my big bad evil guys, even for um, just use regional effects as hints and clues and things like that for my players to understand that something is amiss and awry. It kind of is catalytic in that regard. It's one of the handful of times I find that 5th edition has really supported the environmental and exploratory side of Dungeons & Dragons, which, let's be honest, is fairly lacking. Yes. So... I'm a big fan of this as well. Uh, I see this as, you're right, being a replacement for these auras that we're missing. Yeah. There are still mid-tier monsters where I want to see these these regional and layer effects all of the time. For uh, Elementals should just inherently have this. Even small ones should be leaving puddles around the workshop. 
that that they're in the small water elementals, right? Yeah. So like we should be getting these ideas, these uh, the idea of what layer actions you can expect to have when you infiltrate a goblin encampment. You'll find a lot of puddles laying around in a goblin encampment as well. Right. So there we go. You're welcome. I love Thank you. That one. Yeah. yeah. I saw your gears going. So, but the layers are different than a home or a base. Mm-hmm. And it's not just mechanics. So what else is it? A base is not necessarily home. A base is a uh, spot where you can find rest and relaxation, but it's not where you're keeping your most prized possessions. A layer is usually a single monster's um, modified fortress that they keep to themselves. That is where they are supreme in power. Um, I agree with you 100%. And I think the key word there is fortress. Yeah. This is a defensible place that they have changed and warped to their own design. Exactly. Yeah. A home for me is is where people go to relax. Mm-hmm. I don't find ancient dragons and beholders and elder brains relaxing in their layers. I, I could see the odd dragon uh, doing it like swimming through their mountain of gold or like gold coins. But, that, but that's one, one chamber within their lair, yes, right? Yeah. So they may have a home within a lair um, or there may be a lair within a base because bases to me are, they're not necessarily defensible fortresses. They are um, installations. I almost yeah, like they're, military. They're, they're spread out. Like there's multiple rooms and hallways leading to a lair or multiple in a base. buildings too, if you're dealing yeah. with, intelligent creatures so but there's no reason why we can't actually have that have these layer actions apply to homes and bases as well yeah do you think that more monsters need to have layer actions um i so my opinion on this one is one yes i think uh you hit the nail on the head when you're like they're more mid-tier monsters some of those especially like the single like big beefy end of tier two big bad evil guy should probably have some muted layer action or whatnot to him but i would even hazard to say that maybe not layer actions but regional effects for anywhere where an ooze lives there should be just wet dripping yeah like these are these and like and like environmental clues yeah right like there uh for the ooze it would be in a series of rooms based around this one room um this is kind of what I was leading into where I was like, I, for those single monsters, yes, for sure. But for monster type, I want to see regional and base layer effects. So if it's kobolds, I want to see a layer effect that is, I don't know, spontaneous traps popping off the wall that just some kobold put there. And now it's getting activated for whatever reason. Or or something along those lines, right? Like the, the kobolds should just have a layer action. The goblins should have layer actions if you are assaulting their lair. I feel this way about demons specifically as well. Oh, yes. Not necessarily devils, although sure, why not? But demons are the ones that really, really hit me with the idea that they should have layer actions. There should be crazy shit going on. I say not devils, but I use chain devil as the perfect example. Yeah, no, I was about to be like chain devils very specifically, like just having chains growing out of the ceiling and hanging. But I like the idea of candles don't burn as brightly. You smell sulfur in the air. These regional effects that let you know a demon is nearby. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with the ranger is the fact that it's damn difficult to legitimately hunt anything because, well, it's a roll. You roll survival. And if you fail... You didn't track it. There's You can have multiple fail states, sure. But honestly, short of a skill challenge... There's not much you can do for true hunting here. We've done an episode on scouting. You can go back and listen to it. We've done an episode on on escorting people through the through the wilderness. We've done um, we've done caravans. We've done a lot about being out kind of in the world already yeah. on the road and and hunting and scouting. There was the set piece where they're finding a a demon possession inside a church, and they had to go kind of hunt down what where the demon was and all this. We have talked about hunting, but we bent over backwards, breaking our backs to make this dynamic and unique because inherently it isn't. No, it really isn't. And um, it's it is one of those things where the exploration side of Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition is lacking. Um, 
I would love to see hunts and this would boost up your rangers. Um, not just in the, let's go, you know, get a deer for dinner or something like that. Even though I think that is an incredibly interesting and could be an incredibly interesting dynamic series of minutes encounters at a table where your party now has to go hunting for food because they've been trapped in the wilderness for a while. But um, I also, when I think of hunting, I think of traditional hunting for food and also like supernatural hunting monsters. Yes. Yeah. They're the two sides of that. Right. The two sides of it. And um, as with supernatural, uh, the TV show syndicated, blah, blah, blah. um, I would love to see a party have to find out and research the items they need to take down that specific monster, then go find those items, and then kill that monster. And they always end up having to find the lair. Yeah. They have to find out where this thing is, and when they get there, there are telltale signs. We don't inherently have that for your base creatures. Gibbering mouthers should have weird areas they live in. Cranium rats. Yep. Should be very different than a, a simple warren that other rats live in. Even and, like owl bears and and like the the, the more monstrous but it's still kind of natural creatures should have some sort of weird layer actions to them. I'm not even sure if layer action is is correct, but at least regional effects. A regional effect. Yeah. A single layer action, maybe. This way, your players are going to gradually learn different aspects of what's going on in your world, become better at navigating the world and dealing with monsters. They will feel educated and and accomplished by doing it and then the next time you run a new campaign you change what all the layer actions are yeah so you just do different ones that's my other problem with layer actions is that they give you the one of these three and it should be three of these 12 yeah no can, you can go off yeah so that every time that you go in you get a different feel for what it is now i'm a big believer in random tables in the first place but I think as, that, as the lazy DM, I, I usually come up with a lot of that stuff off the top of my head, and I usually base a lot of that off of um, several key phrases that have always done well for me to pique a party's interest when you're traveling long distance. Um, having your party come up to a thing and say, you hear nothing. The, the sound of nature seems to have stopped. There is no... You know, cricket. Uh, there is no cricketing of crickets. There is no tweeting of birds. There is no rustling in the leaves. The wind is dead. Now your party's interested and wondering why the hell everything has just gone still and silent, right? And using these leading things to describe vague borderline regional effects will go miles for you as a DM. I like. Yes, I agree, and I think that that is one of the things that dungeon masters that have been doing it for a long time inherently know to mm-hmm. do. As they have discovered this, a lot of people that are going to listen to Critical Role or any of the other big ones that are out there, yeah, um, they're going to hear Dungeon Masters doing this all the time and not realize that this is what you do because you're experienced. There's nothing in the books to support this idea of properly using descriptive terminology to indicate that the feeling, the atmosphere, things have shifted. And there is a monster nearby. I think that players would be a lot more willing to put up with some DM bullshit when it comes to ambushes. Yeah, oh yeah. And, and getting captured and stuff. If you telegraphed this stuff ahead of time and they couldn't figure out what it meant. Right? And one of the really clear and simple and easy ones is simply spider webs. Oh yeah. When you put in a spider web here or there, it's one, like most of them will be, oh, okay, there's a spider nearby. It's a creepy haunted house when you put in a room full of spider webs they're looking for giant spiders no one's looking for an edder cap <laughs> right and you should always be looking for an edder cap what a web we weave so you can subvert these expectations by having similar yet slightly different maybe they're doing an investigation check to find out the nature of these webs do the webs glisten and does that mean that if they sparkle under blue light then it's going to be a phase spider right like you can add these little bits and pieces in and we as experienced dungeon masters know to do that but inexperienced dungeon masters or people that are just running out of modules over and over and over again may not realize that that's something that you can really focus on to add a depth to your game so think about layer actions and regional actions that's why it's so important for us to to dig into this and also we jogged our memory to go into this because we just dealt with a wizard oh yeah yeah in in a wizard's tower so um which is its own unique kind of crazy-ass lair that's famous, but also poorly defined as well. Yeah. So, yes, Wizard's Towers are insane, 
but there's almost never any sort of definition to what that means. No. I mean, the closest thing you get is what's going on in the Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Yes. Right? And and you could do so much more when you're now talking about an old, uh, slightly slanted, uh, old cobblestone tower in the middle of the woods in a clearing somewhere. Yeah. Right? So... When you're designing a lair, let's not focus on Wizard's Tower immediately, but when you're designing a lair, what are a handful of the aspects that you are consistently thinking about? When you're designing a lair, when you're coming up with it for the players to go through and interact with the environment before they get to the monster or the creature or whatever themselves. And remember, not every lair needs to be a bad guy. No. Right? Even good guys, good dragons have lairs, right? So, um... When, when you're designing, when you're putting it together, what are you thinking about? What, what are the handful of key aspects that really pop out in your mind? The top one that comes up is purpose. And specifically, what is the monster's purpose uh, in a very flavor story way of looking at it? Um, for a red dragon, it is to dominate and to gather wealth. For a uh, mind flayer, it is to enslave and to consume and to learn. And to procreate. And, they got uh, weird yeah. procreating shit going Yeah, too. right? Yeah. Um, so whenever I'm looking at the layers of these kind of monsters, and even if I'm like an Ankeg queen, okay, well, I know what I'm doing for that because they are about procreating and, and, and in a weird hive mind way, world domination as well. So when I'm looking at their layers for these monsters, I'm looking at what kind of purpose does this monster have and how does their layer help them achieve that? Right? So um, if it's a blue dragon, there's probably a meeting hall somewhere in, in, in the lair that doubles as an ambush place uh, space, right? Um, someplace close to uh, um, somewhere where he could easily dispose of the body should he need to, right? Um, stuff like that is what I'm looking at first when I come to a lair is what purpose this lair serves. I'd say the next thing that I dig into, and this seems so obvious when I say it out loud, and yet I think a lot of people kind of brain fart on it a little bit. Yeah. Lighting. Everything, <laughs> everything in 5th edition, except your players, well, except two of your five players, has dark vision. Every human everywhere goes, maw, and dragonborn, weirdly. Yeah. And so, why are there windows? Why are there shafts of light coming through? Why are there bioluminescent things? Why are there sconces for torches? If there is a lich in a castle, do you not think that they would have boarded up the windows, bricked up the windows, removed every torch in there? Mm -hmm. Right? Especially things that are uh, vulnerable or susceptible to fire. Would they not get rid of these light sources all over the place? Um, and if they if they didn't, uh, what would they do to make it so that they were unlightable? Yeah. Right? Like, we mentioned oozes earlier, and oozes can be susceptible to fire. Um, I would, even though they're low-intelligence creatures, their um, area around them would just, everything is so wet and covered in this thin film that there's no way you're lighting a torch in here. Yeah, and so I often think about a light source. The other thing about this is, of course, when your characters start carrying light sources around... They are announcing that they are there, and it's going to put them at a real disadvantage, mechanically and flavor-wise, when it comes to stealth. Mm -hmm. Anything else you have off the top of your head? Um, I want to build off the idea that, you know, some things need light, and how they interact with light is important, but also how they interact with food is important. Um, do they store it up? Do they have a back door where they let food in? Do they have a grazing field? Do they have... Like, what food do they eat and how do they eat it? This is something I'm going to keep in mind when I'm um, designing a lair, especially for a monster I'm expecting my players to fight, because hunger is often a great motivating factor for my big bad evil guys, or even just my thick monsters that I don't want my guys to fight. So I'm often thinking about um, what the monster eats, whether it is, you know, people or f uh, fungus or... Um, souls, if I'm going more specifically souls, or maybe they eat just brains or just eyes or just the left tooth, one of the left teeth in their mouth. And that's all that they eat. Um, one of the things that uh, springs to mind with this is there's that fey creature that eats hair and is all about hair. The Corid. The Corid, right? Uh, if you're walking into a Corid lair, it is just, uh, it looks like a unclean barbershop. 
off of every surface. You know how sometimes um, there's like uh, you don't you don't live in a house with three women. There <laughs> there is clumps of hair sometimes that just has appeared like in your mouth sometimes too. How how how? <laughs> yeah, like if you own cats. Or have uh, more than uh, one woman living, or someone with long hair. Terry probably suffers with this as well. Um, you have, you know, clumps of hair. Like, these are just signs and things I would draw on when I'm building a lair as well. I guess the last thing that I would bring up is, as far as my real go-to, I know that you often like to rely on sound. And taste, weirdly, but yeah. Um, my big thing when it comes to a lair is smell. Because I know when I walk into a cave that is going to be inhabited, just by the smell of rotten meat or sweat or like when when you walk into Dave's room, you know you're in Dave's room, right? <laughs> just by just by the odiferous nature of that fucking air. <laughs> and like I said, taste. Yeah. <laughs> so there are definitely things for people to to focus on when it comes to the idea of smell. Fur is one of them, mm-hmm. um, but and it's it's easy to say, oh, you know, shit and and um, scraps of food and so on and so forth. But the thing that I often think about is how long has it been there as well? Yeah, and is it wet? Whatever it is, is it a wet smell or a dry smell? And just by just by mentioning that this is a there's a humidity to this room where the where the skeletons are. Yeah. There was rot in here, and you can still smell it in the air. That's enough to get people to pay attention to it. Yeah, and 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 you could go across the gamut with this as well. Like mentioning things like um, there's a smell of ozone or um, uh, uh, sulfur for demons, sulfur like, for re- all or, sorts or, of stuff. or a blast of salt water when you're in the middle of a cave somewhere, or or that fresh blast of air, like. What do your monsters smell like? And their layers will smell like that a hundred times. Also, how fastidious are your monsters? Because some of them, your good dragons, are probably really clean. I would say... Mind flares would probably be fairly clean as well, I would suspect. Liches, I see them being clean. Some of them, yeah. But when you hit a goblin base, you know that there's just like heaps of carcasses out behind the, the mess hall. Yeah. Right? Like there are going to be some areas that are distinctly... and. Almost the lower intelligence you go, the dirtier it's going to be. Although that's not always true. I think that uh, beholders are not going to spend a whole lot of time sweeping. That be, I find that would be, I think that would be fairly difficult. However, piles of ash that were once um, garbage that they've now disintegrated, maybe. Yeah, but they also might just put that garbage to sleep. They don't have a whole lot of control over that. I guess that's true. So there are definitely things to pay attention to with this idea of smell, and the other thing too to keep in mind, I'm going to go back to the idea of torches and light sources and whatnot. Torches and candles give off smell. Smoke smells. That is going to bring some creatures right to your party. Yes. So, and it's not necessarily the light. Sometimes they're just like you look at wolves, the ability to have, they've got the keen senses that are based on smell. I like to give that to anything where it would relatively make sense. These things are hunters out in the wilderness. Yeah, fair let, enough. Let them hunt. Yeah. Right? So, um, Maybe not. Well, you know, owl bears. Why not? So, so I mean, I, we could talk about this forever. But oh, let, yeah. let's let's move over to the idea of wizards towers. Okay, these are unique for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is they're probably relatively old, and every corner of them is filled with purpose. Yes, every corner. Short of dragon layers, I don't see anything else really being like this. Um. It, I mean, it does really depend on your wizard. If you're going from like Sword of the Stone Merlin, um, I I see his layer being quite messy because he's a scatterbrained kind of wizard, right? That that that's that old goofy trope of the the wise but um, somewhat detached wizard, right? Um, but I agree with you where every corner has at one point had a purpose, and whether that magic um, that has activated that purpose is still in effect or has some residual side effect or something. No, that, that, that's not what, that's not what I mean. I don't mean like there is a thing in every corner. I don't mean it's messy. I mean, there is distinct purpose. They see every cubic inch. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, as I see it as an opportunity for them to do something here. So even though that corner is empty, that's where they write down their teleportation circles and they, that's what it's for. Don't put a chair in there. Right. And so there's going to be little things that, only a wizard truly understands. I think this is probably true for warlocks as well, 
right? When it comes to their, their... That's my altar. Don't put anything on it. I will have to sacrifice it. Yeah, but it's more than that, too, because it's more than just the sacrificial altar or the, the tome of, of spells or whatever it is that they have. They they live a life that is either going to hide the fact that they worship something yeah. or embrace it. And so you really have the two sides of the cleric's domain as well. But let's talk wizards specifically. I think that, that every every inch has a purpose. There are no dead ends unless the dead end is there on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's the very first thing that I think of when it comes to Wizard's Tower. There are no accidents. There's no mistakes. It's not random unless he's testing something random. It, it to the layman, to everyone but the wizard's brain, like the wizard themselves, it might seem random. Um, and when it comes to the end of the Wizard's Tower, after you've worked through it, um, you should see why that room was the way it was after, right? Like there should be some completion of thought there. Yes. The other thing about it is, I feel like every room is uh, wacky different. Yeah. As much as you're going to have a general kind of theme of, oh, this guy's a fire mage of some sort. Everything is kind of warm and fire. Every room is different. Well, whereas one would have a, a giant fireplace in one corner of it. One is full of ovens and stoves. Another one is full of a giant bonfire in the middle of a massive room. Right? So you can hit the same general theme, but you don't want to just walk into a bedroom, see a normal bedroom. And walk out again. There has to be a purpose behind it. And it should you should lean into what is the theme of your wizard? Mm-hmm. Right? Because D&D 5th edition goes out of its way. There are more wizards classes than anything else except clerics. Yeah. So when it comes to subclasses, there are lots. There are 12 of them. That is nutty. And so with 12 different kinds of wizards, and even then when we run into a wizard in the like as an NPC... Each one of them is radically different with their own unique perspectives on the world. And mages are strange and bizarre and see things from a long game or or they've got a specific purpose they've devoted their life to. Everything is different. This is one of the things that I wanted to mention specifically with wizards is if I am flavoring a wizard's tower, knowing the specialty school of that wizard is going to be the first thing I think about and the first thing I, I build off of. Because... Um, you're not going to see a bunch of necromancy kind of stuff in a abjuration wizard's tower. Unless they study it over in the corner, you know, like, and, and so, like, I, I hear what you're like, saying. Like, but. Yeah, there might be some necromancy to achieve the purpose of how do I build that defensive spell yes. for the abjuration wizard, right? Yeah, but you're like, not going to have, like, the giant throne made of skulls. Yeah, right? It, it Like, so when you're flavoring a wizard's tower, there is, like you said... 12 different subclasses to build off of. There's ample historical and hundreds of literary examples as well to draw from of what kind of kooky, freaky deaky wizards of things might be inside of a wizard's tower. Um, Having their list of spells to draw on is going to help you out immensely as well after you know what school they are from. I absolutely agree with you. The other thing that I'm going to find about a wizard's tower is that we're going to lean into the player's expectations. And when a player understands that they're walking into a wizard's tower, they're expecting craziness. You are going to undermine yourself as a dungeon master if you do not provide to some degree on a funhouse aspect to this. Yes. Um, And one of the ones that Dan and I always rely on is messing with gravity. Mm Mm-hmm. That is something that we really, really like to focus on. Whenever you walk in, you're going to be walking up walls or you're going to fall up to the ceiling as soon as you pass through the door. Or suddenly there are things that are floating that you've got to jump from one side to another. It's always fun. It's always good. But it's something both Adam and I have mentioned so many times that we're covering it now, not after we roll dice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, is, <laughs> this is not a unique thing for us. This, yeah. is, this is pretty if standard. A, if so. we have a wizard's tower, you're walking on the ceiling at some point in time. It's just going to happen. Sorry. All right. So let's come up with three fun examples of layer actions to add to a wizard's tower. So this will be on initiative count 20. It loses any tie with any player. Okay. All right. Because that's the general rule yep, for, yep. for layer actions. So we don't have to apply these to our own campaign. So get as outlandish and bizarre as you want with these, Dan. Sure. Let's roll. I got a one. I got a not higher than a one. So I guess I'm going first. I guess so. Um, so what do you got? The very first thing that I want to do with a layer action is I'm going to have shit come to life. Okay. Awakened 
creatures, like uh, inanimate objects that are suddenly awakened and uh, homunculi, uh, simulacrum, even clones. I want shit that should not be alive to be alive. Even a gargoyle or a golem, like I want the statues to come to life and move around and maybe they don't attack. Just on this turn, they add that weird little chaos to, you know, all the the chair you're sitting in leaves the room. <laughs> Do you stay in it? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, it, and it will have its own reason. And I've set this up ahead of time, and I I know what it, what each of these things are doing. But let's be honest: when we talk about wizards, the magician's apprentice is oh, yes. forefront on people's minds. And so, dancing, talking, or dancing, walking brooms are are a big factor. Even sort of the stones, another good example. Where it was the washing the dishes that just got away from from Arthur, right? Yeah. So the idea that there are things that are truly awakened, and I like giving them some amount of sentience as well. They might not be able to talk because they might not have a mouth. However, there's a, there's some fun shit to do with just body language. What what is a stool's body language or a bookcase's? And I mean, you can you can go to Beauty and the Beast. For a lot of these these pieces of infer, of inspiration, I I would view like uh, whenever you have something normally inanimate come to life that is somewhat of a tool has a, has a tool has a function like a broom or a shovel or a fork or something like that or a host on a podcast or a host on a podcast is a tool or has one yep or both um, they are going to perform that task and if. You interrupt that task with something, they are going to be upset that you've interrupted their task at that, like, interrupted the completion of their task. I don't even necessarily have to have them become hostile. Just having them be annoyed Annoyed, is enough, yes. Right? Like, I, 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 like a broom sweeping the feet of your barbarian who refuses to move from that one spot. Yep, and annoyance then turns to frustration, then might be a, a just a jab in the knee. Right, and yeah, then, like a, a a little bit of straw bristle kicks it in the back of the leg, and somehow a broom huffs and storms away. So I I really like using awakened creatures and whatnot. The other one that is very famous to me in my head is uh, doorknobs that can talk. I love labyrinth and like that level of yeah, Alice in Wonderland too. Yep, yep. Like uh, there's I I absolutely love the idea of you reach out to touch the doorknob and the doorknob says let go of my face, please. And I have like, I want my face Yeah, and I have put that in a lot of my wizards towers mm-hmm. in the past. And if we can start thinking thinking in unique ways about what to animate, here's one, Dan. Animate the floor. Awaken the floor. Why not? Yeah. Don't just have it an object on a table or just the table itself, but what's the table on? Right? Uh, I look at the Harry Potter um portraits and the stairs. If the stairs have sentience. You have to appease the staircase. And pe- and people don't think about this. It's not enough to just simply have the chandelier raining curses down upon you. Spitting hot fire from the mm-hmm. chandelier. Right? It's not enough to do that. I want the ceiling to get, like, increasingly agitated with you. Yeah. No, I, 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 I love that idea. I like changing the terrain um, in a wizard's tower room. Um, as a layer action. Uh, so on on the initiative count of twenty, um, suddenly there are walls where there were no longer where there were not walls before. Um, there are pits where there were not pits before. Do you do you mess with the TARDIS level of of spaces are bigger on the inside? Than oh the inside? yes, a wizard's tower is always bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Always without fail, right? It could also be smaller. All of a sudden you're walking up a little like five foot by five foot ladder room. Right, that has windows on all sides that you can see. Oh my see. god, can you imagine an awakened ladder? That would be terrifying. As yeah. someone who works on ladders daily. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> it just runs away while you're on it. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so I, I like messing with the terrain. Now, with a wizard's tower, this is not just, you know, one stone wall appears and another stone wall disappears. This is not one oak door appears and another oak door disappears. Um, if you have a, I don't know, a nature-based wizard of some sort, this is trees grow and bushes recede, um, paths appear and then rivers run through, right? Or, or creeks or whatever run through. I really right? like this idea, the idea of, of the trees growing or, or receding and the rivers getting wider or, or narrower. I mean, at first I'm thinking, well, that's just druids. You're just saying druid shit, which is fine. Yeah. But... 
they've got a chronomancer in uh, the Wildmount book. Yeah. And the idea that shit is just aging or de-aging all over the place yeah. is really fun and, and kind of creepy, too. Yes, very much, including your players, right? Like, yeah. uh, as Or a- just parts of the players. Barbarian gets a little baby dick. Bloop. Why is my voice getting higher? <laughs> I would like to rage. <laughs> the bard tries to sing a song. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, these like messing with the terrain that your players are in um, to um, confound them. You don't need a fully built out labyrinth to have a maze. Mess with the terrain. So it's pretty standard that when you go into a wizard's tower, you're going to run into riddles and puzzles. Yes. That's pretty par for the course on this. Why not have your layer actions be the result of the riddle or the puzzle not being answered quickly enough? Okay. So it's it's simple enough. Oh, if you don't solve the riddle and speak the word outside, the walls close in by five feet every round. Yeah, okay. right. So, so that's a very simplistic perspective on that. But I like the idea of... Um, it says, what's my favorite animal? And every animal that the players guess, whoever guessed it, becomes that animal. Until they can get that door open and leave the room. So on initiative count 20, it'll it'll go through. So they're going to realize that, hey, at some point, stop guessing animals and try to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Right? When you say, hey, what's my favorite uh, wizarding school? And every time that they say something and the answer is wrong, a spell, a cantrip from that wizarding school goes off in the room. Cool. Right? So... The layer actions can be not just the environmental factor, but you can you can work it into the the puzzles, the riddles. The uh, we don't talk a lot about puzzles and riddles in this show because you solve it or you don't, right? And there are fail states, sure, but they're not really dynamic. They can be a side of an exploration or a part of downtime, but for the most part, you figure it out usually with a roll or two. Mm-hmm. Or you're just playing a guessing game, or you've handed out a mini game to your players, right? And they're sitting there trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together in the middle of the table, trying to figure this shit out. So as as you go through these puzzles and riddles, there should be a consequence for the time that passes. Okay. And while I don't necessarily like the idea of the walls closing in, because then, you know, if they don't get it in time, it squishes you. I do like the idea of things just getting very, very strange and weird. Uh, the distance between people grows. The room stays the same size, but the distance between people grows. Huh. Just because they're not working as a team. I would have a thematic reason for crazy shit like that to happen. So I'm going to play with the physics of the room um, and and cast high-level spells on them, but not damage-dealing spells, like polymorph, mm-hmm. right? So things to just, you know, they fall asleep. You guys walked into a, an altar, a tower, and all you needed to do was... Um, was enter the room and read the thing on the wall and you would be able to leave. But there were people that were refusing to read the thing on the wall that would go in and, and they, it wasn't... Someone would say, oh, it says this. And everyone else would be like, oh, okay. And that's that's it. I recently ran a one-shot where everyone w- walked into a room and they were, depending on what they rolled on a random table, they would turn into a quote-unquote race of stone. So it was um, Goliaths or Earth Genasi or whatever. Dwarves. Or, Dwarves was another yeah, one, yeah. yeah. So... They would turn in. They would, they would suddenly turn into this, and they would get infused with these powers. They would gain more racial traits as a result of this. But then learn. Uh, they would learn the new language and forget common. <laughs> common would be replaced, and that was just a layer action that happened if you stayed in this room at initiative count twenty. Cool, right? And so, and they were sitting there saying, "Well, do I do I re-enter the room? Do I try to replace this new language with one of the other languages so I can I can talk with me with." The other players, because you know Goliath, and I know Dwarven, and that guy knows, uh, like, uh, Sylvan, right? And so we're like, okay, well, someone has to go in there and go through this transformation again so that we can all get on the same page and figure our shit out. Yeah. So so that that's, that's me. I like to play with who the characters are. Tomb of Horrors is great for that, the original one. However, it's also horribly unforgiving. And I would not actually run it in 5th edition unless, you know... Maybe we'll do it for the podcast someday. We will just see how long it takes us to get through the Tomb of Horrors. Oh my god, yes please. I will run the shit out of that. I wish we should make one of the chumps do it. Um, you think? Coffee bitch? Uh, or male slave or completely, totally normal Megan. Because I want to play through it. I want to see if I can figure out the Tomb of Horrors. Yeah, fair enough. 
in a realm of magic, in a world of magic, often the lack in a world. <laughs> often the lack of magic is the thing that's going to draw the attention of the players and cause chaos. Um, so I would, at initiative count twenty, um, have all magic stop working in this room for a turn, and then at the next initiative count twenty, okay, now. Uh, no ranged uh, spell effect or weapon effect will take place, but you could still do melee things. Anything ranged, the second it leaves your person, just falls falls harmlessly to the ground, right? I would have weird, um, almost countermeasures on your party, just to add difficulty. I would definitely do this in a room where a definitely lower CR than it should be fight is designed to happen. Um just at, a, at initiative count 20, the room prepares counter spell. Yeah, right? And then it just, the first spell cast is countered. Or the first three spells are countered or something, right? Um, this adds another frustrating option. I would put this more likely in an Abjurist's um, tower. Uh, be- any, any wizard that's paranoid enough could have this. Yeah, right? Which... Is not, most wizards um, or would be paranoid because the only person that's going to unlock a wizard secret is another wizard, most likely. Or a bard, much to the annoyance of every wizard everywhere. So um, having the like the room you're in suddenly being in an anti-magic field, that's nuts, right? Especially if the solution is the reliance on some sort of magical thing. Or if you're pairing this with, uh, you know, the floors moving. And now you're in an anti-magic field and the walls are completely sealed up and there's no exit. So what do you do, right? So that's that's another thing I would do. Okay, I'm going to think outside the box a little bit on this one for my last one. All I'm going to do is force a save. Okay. There will be six different effects, one linked to each one of the, um, each one of the abilities. Yep. And I'm going to roll... Everybody roll a DC 17. It's always going to be 17 uh, for this example. All right. Uh, DC 17. And I roll the dice. DC 17. Wisdom. Save. Everybody roll that. The people that fail it will have an effect put upon them. A condition effect. Yeah, okay. There's going to be every round the opportunity to gain more effects. And you do not have any control over what you're going to be what ability you're going to be rolling, right? Because it seems to be just randomly going off. As we talk about things like, oh, we're going to have this awaken or we're going to have the room open up or, or close down or there's going to be walls of fire that suddenly appear or whatnot. Well, if you roll a charisma check on this round, you can just see the room normally and all of the illusions go away. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. All right. So you have the ability to do this, but on initiative count 20 on the next turn, you may end up losing that ability and there will be something else that happens to everyone. Someone else may have the advantage. And so you can have it. It turns a single room into crazy fun house all of the time. Constitution. Everybody roll. For those of you that fail, you all take cold damage. Your movement is halved for the next round. And you see tundra and arctic and, and swirling cold uh, gusts of wind and snow banks. And you cannot see any windows or doors or or even where anyone else is. For those of you that make the save, everybody just starts shivering and, and they're all yelling loudly trying to hear each other. Okay, this is cool. I really like this because this, you could get really weird with this. Yeah, and so I'm playing with the environment again still. It's just, this is still lair actions and I'm not doing any real damage to them. But this becomes a whole lot scarier when there's a bad guy in the room. Yeah. I like this for an illusionist or a transmutationist or a transmuter. Yep. Uh, or an enchanter. I like that, this idea that you're getting people's minds and you're messing with what they're seeing. And there will be a certain amount of damage that is taken on, you know, every once in a while. Even an, uh, an evoker, right? If you're going to bring in aspects of the elements of the planes and whatnot as well. You could have a conjuration. This makes a lot of sense for someone who's a, who conjures things. But you think about the crazy amount of psychic damage or force damage that maybe a necromancer is doing when your dead loved ones come back to life and start talking to you. Or you are suddenly face to face with your own grave, your own tombstone, or in a coffin, or whatever it is, right? Like, mm-hmm. And there can be all sorts of interesting environmental effects that you do here, but it's based on randomized 
saves that you're doing until you get out of maybe even the entire tower. This is going off. So this is a race. Get through this shit as quickly as possible. Yeah. I would, if I'm going to do it for the whole tower, I'm going to drop that DC to like 11. Yes. So that you're only going to fail this once every three or four rounds. But there's still that constant state of stress that shit is very wrong here. Also, for most of the things that I'm saying, there's going to be an off switch somewhere in the In tower. the room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it's across the entire tower, it'll be at the end of the tower, right? But this is, these are. Or even, or even there's one in each room that just isolates it for the room as you go up. Sure. Because some things like if you have a massive puzzle room, this is going to take time to figure out. Your party coming and going, okay, we just need to find the off switch first. Yeah. Right? And now you have this obfuscated off switch, which could be any number of things. It could be a key phrase, a physical button, a lever, a loose pressure pr uh, plate. Right? It could be any number of things. So for my final one, um, I really wanted to build on the idea of... Um, great board games specifically mouse trap and snakes and ladders i think a wizard's tower being an entire session long madhouse dungeon of sorts um all runoff initiative as you're trying to ascend this tower um being kind of how i'm going to build a lot of my wizard's tower especially if my party's going to be fighting through it um so i would have once every Six seconds or ten seconds. So if this is in combat, it's a layer action. If they're not in combat, they will just see this pop up. A uh, Either a ladder will appear magically in the room or a stairwell or a dumbwaiter or something. And at the inverse side of that, at every layer action turn, one of the players will have to make a dexterity save or fall through the floor and slide down to a floor they have already been on. And they will have to solve that puzzle again. This adds that certain amount of maze aspect as you are trying to pull your players up this tower and you're trying to aid them by giving them hints to climb up these ladders. But some of these ladders might be traps with slides down or some of these slides might end up in a room that's higher up. I did this actually one time with a tower where there were seven different, eight, eight different levels mm -hmm. to it. And every level you went up, there was a serious issue that you may fall back down again. Yep. My players got so frustrated having mm -hmm. to redo this over and over. It took us an entire session to go probably the span of about 510 feet in game. Oh, good. And every three steps forward was six steps back, which was thoroughly frustrating. This tower murdered a player. And uh, and nearly murdered a second one. Like it was very close. Yeah, I had I had a uh, character die in this session. This this doesn't dissuade me at all. No, I'm just saying that. Be aware of the fact that while this may be fun for you, your players may be very upset and frustrated as as you go forward. I would make it part of a puzzle. I think having a way to turn off the layer actions, no matter what you do, is going to be important. So that your players can progress through once they learn that there are going to be off switches. Um, or ways to turn them off. Now some of the rooms you may not be able to progress unless you turn off the layer action. Others you may be... And I'm a big fan of red herring. Like oh yes. Like, so like there are there are three or four um, levers. And they're all labeled off. Yep. But one of them, just like the lever comes off the wall in your hand, and one of them is... Turns like, the lights off. Yeah, and the last one just, like, kills you. Just, like, boop. It offs you. It offs you. You're yeah. done. Yeah. I like it. Any final thoughts before we wrap this episode up? Um, the regional effects that we, that we see with uh, ancient dragons and many of the leg uh, legendary creatures do have this period of time after that creature leaves that area or dies... Where these effects continue and then slowly peter out and It's end. often 1d10 days. It's often 1d10 days. Um, however, some of the dragons, if their corpses reside in a spot, there is a smaller regional effect that happens. Right? And is persistent. It, it continues forever. Where a blue dragon dies is where there's always a thunderstorm. Yeah. Over this, you know... Uh, seven yard area there yeah. is always a thunderstorm right um for our bigger big bad evil guys some of them that might not have these kind of actions of these kind of regional effects really think about what kind of effect that creature has on the nature and the environment around them even if they are 
long gone or dead, right? Does nature come back to take over the keep of a lich that is dispatched? Also, you can do things as well, like if they've got some sort of force field up that's holding back, you know, the elemental plane of chaos from coming into the, like, whatever it is. And then they die. A lot of the time, in a lot of older modules and older adventure campaigns, you would you would kill the bad guy and then have to escape as the layer comes crumbling down around you. And and this is something I love because there's always this um not always, but there there tends to have this weird awkward part where you've just killed the big bad evil guy, everyone's out of spells, you know, someone is just getting up from being revivified because no one's allowed to die in 5th edition. Um and there's that awkward spot where like, okay, so we loot and then we take a long rest. No, 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 bitches. You got to get out. Like the the gigantic 30 foot stone is rolling down the path towards you and there's no left or right. You got to run away from it and none of you have a whip. So good luck. Right. So the bard probably does. Uh, well, not the right kind of whip. Right. Yeah. Uh, so regional effects can as a mother flogger. So using your regional effects to uh, not only telegraph what a monster is doing currently, but what a monster has done, and then have the regional effects disintegrate around your party after the death of that monster and like knowing what's going to happen to all of these regional and layer effects after the death of the creature is incredibly important to plan or at least have an idea of what you got going on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the It's a Mimic Campaign Builder. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. And this wraps up the final episode of the Campaign Builder that Dan is on. We recorded seven other episodes moving forward, but it left us in a bit of a weird transitionary place. Uh, So we've decided to backtrack a little bit, and I'm going to be joined with different hosts throughout the rest of this Campaign Builder as we work as a team to use dynamic encounters in order to make the best campaign we possibly can. Stay tuned in the new year where there will be a different format for this show, but all of the key pieces will still be in place, and we should be getting regular Campaign Builder episodes moving forward. Make sure to watch our social media accounts for any further announcements. Of course, those are on Instagram, Facebook, and r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. And if you have any questions, or you're just trying to figure out what the current status of anything is, feel free to reach out to us at www.itsamimic.com or through our email, at info at itsamimic.com. You can find the entirety of Tier 1 of the Campaign Builder on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube.